morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Elle Cosimano, author of the Fenley Donovan Mystery Series. Elle, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. So I read the first book, Finley Donovan is Killing It, pretty much in a single sitting uh, two or three days ago. I'm about halfway through the second book. Um, but I'm going to stick to talking to the first book today because we don't want to we don't want to risk any spoilers. Um, so let's talk about point of view to start with. You write in the in the first person, and you very quickly establish a strong voice for Fenley. Talk about that choice of point of view and and how you create voice in your writing. Yeah, um, I think it was really important for me, especially with this book to be inside Finley's head, grounded very, very deeply inside her head. And I think it's really because the heart of this story is about a woman rediscovering herself after a major upheaval in her life. And so I, I, I made that conscious choice for two reasons. One, because it is a mystery, and I wanted the readers to be along for that ride as Finley is uncovering all of these exciting clues along the way and sort of discovering uh, the whodunit of the story. But I also wanted the readers to be along for the ride as she's rediscovering herself. And I felt like the best way to do that would be to anchor myself very, very strongly in her head from a first person point of view. Um, And her voice, I felt um, very connected to. Her voice is very, very close to my own, um, you know, as, as a writer, as a mom. And so I think that the, the choice of voice came very naturally to me and it just felt right for her and it stuck. Yeah. Yeah. I just love the way just really on the first page, you feel like you know her already just from that, that voice, even before we know very much about who she is or what her situation is. Um, now, I have a slightly unfair advantage uh, in this interview in that I got to see you on stage at Bookmarks um, not too long ago at our Murders and Margaritas event, and I hadn't had so much of my margarita that I couldn't uh, pay attention to what was going on. Uh, and you told us then about the genesis of the Finley Donovan stories, and I, I just, I love this story, how it, how it all started. Tell us about how the series came to be. Yeah, this is the most fun thing to talk about whenever I talk about Finley Donovan is the origin story behind this novel is so um, it's so unique and it's really special for me. Um, back in early 2018, I was at a writer's retreat with two of my beloved critique partners, Megan, uh, Megan Miranda and Ashley Elston. We have been writing parallel side by side since the very beginnings of our career, um, more than a decade ago. I think we we all started writing sometime around 2010, 2011. We landed at the same agency. Um, none of us really knew what we were doing. We we're all very, very new at this. And our agent was the one who brought us together and said, the three of you are kind of at the same place in your careers. You're all struggling with a lot of the same thing. Go, go figure this out together. Well, we became fast friends, you know all of us being mothers of young children and struggling novelists who are coming from other careers. 
Um, and we just connected really deeply. And so every year we have a retreat and we get together and we talk about our stories and we talk about our careers and we talk about family. Well, it was at one of these retreats when we were troubleshooting a particularly violent uh, plot point in one of the books I was under contract to write. Um, it was a fantasy novel that um, had themes rooted in, in, in death and rebirth and all of these things. And um, I was stuck on who specifically to kill off in this particular chapter and how it should be done. And it was this that we were discussing in a crowded Panera bread over lunch when it occurred to us that the woman at the table beside us was probably eavesdropping on the conversation and had clearly misconstrued um, the content of the conversation based on the only context she had, which were questions like um, what happens to the body, um, who cleans up the blood. And, you know, and so on and so forth. Well, it was, um, she was deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And we all laughed about it at the time. But it was later that night that someone posed the question, wouldn't it have been funny if she assumed you were contract killers? And it was like this light bulb moment that I remember so clearly in my career, um, when that seed of the idea of the story really kind of rooted itself in me and I couldn't let it go. And I knew that then that this was a story that was just going to eat at me until it got written. Um, and that was really the origin of this book about a woman who is a struggling novelist who is overheard at a Panera talking with her agent about her book when she's misconstrued for a contract killer and accidentally gets in over her head when this woman attempts to pay her to kill a problem husband. And so the the opening of Finley Donovan is killing it very closely mirrors the actual inspiring event. It definitely makes me think twice before I have a loud conversation at, at Panera, you know, uh, or a conversation. I mean, we, we've had this discussion before, too, about when you're writing uh, when you're writing thrillers, when you're writing books where murders take place. In my case, I have a novel coming out that's got some Nazis in the background, you know, so what you're always afraid, like, what if somebody looks at my search history? Um, you, you told us, I think we were all really impressed the other night listening to you talk about your research and especially about something called Writer's Police Academy. Tell us a little bit about that and, and, and about in general, how you go about um, researching, let's just call it unpleasantness. Yeah, so um, research is one of my favorite parts of what I do. You know, we spend hours upon hours behind a screen alone, um, and hands-on research is really um, just joyful for me. It gets me out from behind the screen. It inspires new ideas. It it kind of keeps me from working in a bubble. And um, I want to say it was probably almost 10 years ago, I discovered a program called the Writers Police Academy. And it's uh, held annually. It is um, the brainchild of a retired police officer who's now a um, an author himself. And he gathers first responders and lawyers and judges and um, undercover cops and forensic technicians and medical examiners and firefighters and all of these amazing people who come out and teach. And it's a conference, if you will, um, a series of hands-on workshops, classes, seminars. And um, I have had the, the privilege of attending um, three years of Writers Police Academy. And over those three years, I've attended countless classes that have become fodder for amazing stories, but um, also a really, really great way to ground 
in, in Finley's case, it's kind of a ridiculous story. We sort of, you know, veer toward the unbelievable at times, but it's a way to ground a story like that in real world details. And so um, I find these programs to be um, just so invaluable. I mean, I can't even describe the the benefit of them. But along with that, I've also done some fun things on my own. Those programs kind of gave me the courage to go out and look for other research opportunities. I've toured forensics laboratories. I've done ride-alongs with police officers. I've interviewed attorneys. I've um, just recently took a handgun class, uh, my very first, to try to um, get more familiar with some of the things I've been writing about now for Finley 3. And um, funny enough, the third Finley Donovan book actually takes place at a citizen's police academy. So I got to refresh on all of these wonderful research opportunities and um, sort of take Finley through them as well, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like an amazing program. And I, I know that, you know, I remember talking to John Grisham and he said, well, I'll just call my guy at the FBI. I'm like, John, not all of us have a guy at the FBI. You know, <laughs> um, Finley's ex-husband was is you know a big part of this um of this story and he doesn't really think that what she does is a real job he doesn't consider writing books to be a i'm using air quotes here real job how how has your own writing career developed and and have you sort of faced and overcome those moments when people were like oh well that's just a hobby that's not actually a career Yeah, you know, I'm very, very fortunate because the people in my closest circles are incredibly supportive. Um, My husband is my biggest cheerleader. Um, We have been together more than 30 years. I could not imagine doing this job without his encouragement, um, without his willingness to let me take a lot of risks with our family income and, um, you know, and pursue a career in writing. And and to support it wholeheartedly. My parents have been my diehard supporters since the beginning. Writing a book was actually my mom's idea. Um, So I am in a much, um, I'm in a much better position, I think, than Finley is at the beginning of her story, where she's really feeling unsupported in her career. But I have, and I think most to some degree, most creatives have, whether you are in the music industry or you make art or you, you know, or you write or you paint or you sculpt, whatever it is, um, you know, I think at some point there has always been someone who's come across our path in life who has suggested that what we do isn't real work. And so, you know, I've, I've had family members ask me, well, when are you going to go back and find a real job, you know, or, or, you know, um, because I started my career writing books about and for young adults, I've had a lot of people ask me, well, when are you going to write a real book? You know, I think we all, we, we all have had experience with people who try to um, qualify and quantify what makes a real job or a real career or a real contribution to family and, and, you know, and find our finances and society in general, everybody has opinions. So I kind of drew from, those conversations um, and try to imagine what it would be like to be a, a struggling novelist in a family um, and in a, 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 you know, a failed marriage as Finley is, where she's not getting that kind of support, where, you know, where people are continuing to question whether or not she's responsible for making the career choice she's made, especially in light of the fact that she has children to raise. Yeah. So let, let's talk about character arc for a minute, because you mentioned the sort of where she is at the beginning. And and I feel like for a, par- a character to have a 
powerful arc, they need to start someplace where both the character and the reader wants them to move on from and, and move to another place. And, and Finley starts in a place of maybe not despair, but, you know, things are not going well. Tell us a little bit about the narrative opportunities you create by beginning her story in sort of a low point. Yeah, you know, I think um, while I'm not what I would call a, a hardcore plotter per se, like I don't like outline my books to a T and know in every chapter what's going to happen next, I generally like to go into um, the planning of a novel, knowing where my story begins and roughly where it's going to end. And a big part of that is my character. Who is my character at the beginning of the story? And who do I really want and need her to be by the end of it? And then how do I get her there? And in Finley's case, um, you know, she's she's presented not to, to give away too much of the story, but she's presented with a very unique opportunity but in order, you know, this woman at the Panera offers her a large sum of money to make a decision to do something that would be horribly wrong. And in order for that to be a, a motivator and in order for that to really, I think, um, explain kind of where Finley is in that choice, there she really kind of has to be at a point in her life where she's struggling in a whole lot of ways. Um, obviously financially was a really, really big one for this, but there, you know, there has to be kind of a deeper motivation there. And for her, it's her children and the, the risk of the potential of losing her children. So here she's in a situation where um, her husband has left her for another woman. He is planning to remarry. They are threatening for custody of the children. Um, Finley's career is not going well. She's financially destitute. She's not paying her bills, which only gives her ex-husband more motivation to to try to pursue this um, path of trying to, to get the children. So she's really desperate, not just financially, but, but deeply emotionally too, at the potential loss that she's facing. And so I kind of needed to pile all that on um, and put her in this really, really horrid situation so that when that opportunity presents itself, um, it's not an easy choice. And it really kind of brings into question, what is she going to do? And what would we all do if we were presented with that same choice? So we, we sympathize deeply with her, I think, from the get-go. Yeah, yeah. So you, you talked about the way this scene at Panera gave you the, the idea for this, this triggering moment. And the way you write the scene in the book, and there's, there's several scenes like this in, in this book and in the second book as well, where... It's sort of the ultimate double entendre, right? You have you're writing a scene where every word of the conversation, every every item that's sort of on screen, every action can be interpreted in two radically different ways, by one by the people who are involved and one by somebody else who's watching. Talk about how you how just how you go about crafting a scene like that where where you have to be sure that that the reader can go back and read it again and go, oh, I see, you know. It is so hard to do. It's There is a juggling act in there and a very, very fine line to walk to still make it feel organic and natural because it could very, very easily slip off into something that just isn't working. Um, but I think really the the so much of that kind of scene development is the same sort of overall development that happens when we're writing a mystery, you know, kind of, we are, writing mystery is almost the same thing. It's a lot of misdirection. Yeah. And so I sort of come at it from the same point of view. I sort of plan ahead. What in my own mind, what do I need to reveal in this scene 
and whose perspectives are here, who, who is privy to what information. And at that point, I kind of just start laying it all out on the page. And then normally what I do is step away from it for a couple of weeks. I actually put it away. Um, so I'm not so close to it that I can't see what is or isn't working. And then after a couple of weeks, I'll come back to it fresh and try to read it from more than one point of view. So if I'm the woman in the, in the Panera who's eavesdropping, what am I hearing? And without knowing anything else, what am I going to take away from that conversation? And then again, from Finley's point of view and the point of view of her agent, what is it they're trying to accomplish in this situation without giving, you know, obviously too much away to... Um, to our bystander. So it's it's um, a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of revision. Um, and, um, and it's kind of coming at it in, with the same tools I would use for planning the mystery itself. What, what can I, um, how can I subtly get away with some misdirection here without, um, you know, while keeping some nuance, while keeping it subtle enough that I, that I, I'm um, still making this very realistic for the readers who are reading along. Yeah. And I think some readers will have, I mean, I just wanted to keep plowing forward because I was having so much fun with the book, but there's going to be some readers who are going to go, I have to go read that scene again and think about it from the other person's point of view. Cause it's just so well done. Uh, it's just, it's just a delight. Now, the first thing I knew about your book before I even knew it was a mystery is my daughter said, Oh, I read this book. It's so funny. Um, and you don't often think in the real world of sort of crime and humor as going hand in hand, um, but you you sort of managed to merge the two fairly seamlessly. Talk, talk about how you introduce humor in the narrative in in a natural way, not where it doesn't feel sort of layered on, but it feels organic. That's another thing that's really hard to pull off. This is my very first attempt at writing a funny book. Um, and honestly, you know, I when I first started down this path of exploration, you know, before I even knew I was going to write the book, my first thought was, can I pull something like this off? All of my other books to date had been so dark and angsty, and they'd all been written for, for teens. There was, um, there were, they were very, um, dark in tone and very serious in tone. And this has, I knew right away, this is going to have a very, very different tone. I knew there was going to be some dark humor here. And honestly, I wasn't sure I could pull that off. I had never attempted it before. It was my critique partners who really encouraged me to give it a try. And, um, and I think what I've learned through this entire process is that the toolbox that I use in creating humor is really the same toolbox that I use in creating a thriller. And um, the skills are all the same. It boils down to pacing. Um, it boils down to timing. Um, and it boils down to tension. And, and I think those are what, those three things are what make funny books funny. It's what helps us stick the landing on a joke. It's the well-timed joke. It's the pacing of the converse of the funny conversations and the dialogue. Um, it's the, the tension around those darkly funny scenes that kind of make us want to laugh and, and also, you know, like make us a little fearful at the same time to sort of balance all of that. And so once I realized that I had spent the last 10 years using all these same tools just in a different genre, I, I was a little bit easier on myself. I was a little bit more delicate on myself and just kind of let myself have fun with it. But it really is, I think, for me, the key to landing the humor has always been about um, keeping the, the pacing tight um, and 
I do that through a lot of revision, through a lot of really, really brutal, careful revision. Yeah, I think that's interesting to say that about pacing. I, my wife and I just got done with a run of a, a comedy play that we were performing in, and there were so many moments there where it's it's just line, 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 and you almost wanted to say to the audience, "No, no, no, don't laugh yet," because we're building to it. You know, exactly. <laughs> you're laughing too soon. <laughs> you know? um, so I've always felt like there's this paradox about parenthood. We want to talk about her as a parent for a minute, and that is that let's be honest, small children you know, they cause us no end of, of frustration and difficulty. They're, they're dirty and they're smelly and they're loud. And yet we would absolutely lay our lives on the line for them and for all that they mean to us and, and how much we love them. How do you capture that, that paradox and that truth about parenting in, in Finley's life? I think for me, it's been about keeping my own experience as a mother very close as I'm writing, you know, those, my, my kids are, and the grown kids aren't much easier either. You know, I've got a, an almost 17 year old and an almost 20 year old and, um, and they're stressful in their own ways. But um, for me, as I was writing, it was trying to keep my fingers on the pulse of those raw, messy, painful, frustrating, joyous, beautiful moments of motherhood and, and, all the experiences and the memories of that and trying to keep those emotions close as I was imagining myself in Finley's shoes through these experiences and trying to draw on those, you know, the, the, um, just the, the whole range of emotions that we experience as a parent. And I feel like in a lot of ways that, part of her voice is a lot of what really grounded her character and made her so relatable to so many readers. I hear that all the time. I relate to Finley. I connect with Finley, not with the murdery parts, but with all the other parts, I really connect with Finley. And that feels so good to feel like um, in the, in the scheme of this wildly absurd story that there's something very real and um, authentic here. Yeah. Well, I just love the fact that I think there's an honesty about parenthood here where, you know, she adores her kids and would do anything for them, but there are dirty diapers and there is, you know, marker on the wall and all the kinds of things that, that, that you deal with. And you just sort of, it, it just, it feels authentic. Um, you know, you talk about how, so Finley has this moment where she has an opportunity to make a whole lot of money by becoming a professional assassin essentially uh i love this because my new novel has a professional assassin in it so i'm just all about that you know but um but she doesn't like it, it doesn't become a binary choice right away right she she makes these little choices that gradually raise the stakes where she does instead of doing something that's that's really horribly morally wrong she does something that's just maybe just a tiny bit off center and then the next thing and then talk about how you sort of ratchet those stakes up with these little decisions that each one she wouldn't have made without having made the previous one. This was so much fun. This part, this particular element of creating the story, I think was so much fun. And I'll kind of give you a little backstory here. When I first came up with the idea for Finley Donovan, I was in my own mind planning and convinced that Finley was actually going to consciously choose to become a contract killer, that, that there would be almost a dexterish sort of component to this anti-hero. She would, she would be a contract killer who also happened to be a mom. And that was the pitch when we went in um, to publishers with the, the opening sort of 
you know, the first 25, 30% of the book that, that I had drafted, that was sort of the pitch and the premise. And um, it, when I started having conversations with uh, my publisher, um, or who would soon become my publisher at uh, Minotaur, her concern was, she said, I, I don't know how I feel about this. I feel like we're not going to have a sympathetic character. So we can't have a mom who is also consciously choosing to become a contract killer. So I'm not sure that we can we can go forward with an offer for the book because I'm just not feeling good about it. And we had a, a very frank conversation, kind of batted some ideas around. And I said, well, give me some time to kind of reimagine this story. And she said, well, if you could make it so that she stays on the right side of that moral line. You can get her toes as close as you can to it, but keep her on the right side of that moral line. Let's see what we can do. And um, and that was really when I started re-envisioning this story from in a very different way. And what I loved about that was the challenge in writing this character who has so many reasons to cross that line. She's got so many compelling reasons to do it, but she's a good person. And, and there's, you know, there's the moral draw to stay on the, on the right side of this line. And yet taking her toes close to that line was so much fun. And with every dip of her toe close to that line, it just seemed to pull her closer and closer and closer to crossing it. And it almost happened in a very organic way um, once I once I kind of got my head around the idea that 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 I was going to try to keep her a hero through this story, and um, and when I was able to re- rethink things and kind of come at it from a different way, um, the challenge then became the fun of um, how hard could I push her, how how far could I push her toward that line, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about when we yeah. see it ratchet yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, um, you. Your writing has, as, as a lot of thrillers and mysteries do, and this is, it gives it, I think, sort of a cinematic quality, um, but you have what I would call set pieces. There are, there are scenes where, I mean, an example is we're, we're in a bar and Finley is sort of juggling the attentions of a bartender with the fact that she's trying to spy on somebody else in the bar and find out what they're up to. Um, so I, the, my question really is sort of twofold. One is, you know, how do you go about imagining the details of those pieces? And then how do you sort of string them together on a necklace where, you know, where you have to have this sort of connecting tissue uh, to, to get from one set piece to the next? The connecting tissue is never there in the first draft. I'll mm-hmm. say that. Um, normally I'm seeing sort of a rough progression of taking my character through the story, but that fantastic connective tissue that you're talking about, the threads that wind through the story, the necklace, if you will, um, none of that is pretty or polished or even whole in those first, often in the first few drafts. So normally I might have some of these fantastic kind of cinematic opportunities where I kind of know where these scenes are taking place and roughly what has to happen, but they don't, they're not fully flushed out until much, much later in my process. And it's usually about, I'm normally at about the 80% of the 
draft, 80% of my drafts are normally done before I even have an idea where I'm going with the story, where I know where my themes are, um, the deeper, more resonant kind of messages that I want to wind through. And at that point, I start going back and revising. And it's not until I've been through this book, maybe three, four times that I really start to finesse those opportunities to tie together theme and plot and character and mystery and humor until all the magic really starts to happen. And I think, you know, the the biggest thing I tell people when they ask me for writing advice is don't be afraid of revision and expect it because that's really, you know, the for me, a lot of what you're describing doesn't happen until much, much later on in the process. It's not a conscious choice at the beginning. It evolves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at one point, Finley asked herself a question, which I think we've all probably asked ourselves at some point in our lives. Some of us probably ask this question every day. I almost feel like you could put this on the cover of the book. And I'm going to quote her exactly. She says, what the hell is happening and how is this my life? Um, how do you balance things that are out of the control of the protagonist with things that are in her control? Um, I think that really comes down to having touchstones throughout the story of who, what is her real life? I try to anchor her in her real life throughout the story. So for every wild and crazy journey that she goes on, or for every sort of zany thing that happens to her, that there's something real grounding, grounding it, a diaper that needs to be changed or a, a toddler that's run off or um, a phone call from her mother, or, you know, or a load of laundry that has to be done. You know, there, there are, there are, um, moments that are kind of interspersed throughout the story. And I think I try to, as often as I can, I hope I do, as often as I can, I try to balance those. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like you, Finley is a writer. We've talked about this a little bit. And and it's it's an interesting challenge to portray a writer in a book because the act of writing in and of itself is not very dramatic. You know, if you have a scene where it says, Finley sits down and writes, like, you know, <laughs> it's pretty boring pretty quickly. Um, so how do you, how do you go about portraying her career in a way that um, that is compelling? And also, how do you use that career to sort of intersect with the story of what's going on in her life? Yeah, you know, our, our job as writers really isn't all that glamorous and and certainly not very exciting. I mean, most of the time I'm, I'm stationary behind a computer screen in my pajamas, which is not... You know, <laughs> It's not anything you would expect to base a thriller around, but, um, and, and I try because I know that a lot of what I could put on the page would only be relatable to other people within our industry. I try to be very spare with those kinds of descriptions. I try not to overwhelm the reader in the minutia of publishing, but to just touch it once in a while as I, you know, as I'm going through the book, but I think what, what really becomes um, the overall fun part for me too, but you know, there's there's a lot of fun and and kind of poking fun at our industry as as I write these scenes, but also it does play a role in Finley's character and the plot because she's using her own life experiences and her um, her drafts, her manuscripts, her stories that are her works in progress. She's kind of using those as a almost a, a sounding board in her own mind to try to solve mysteries in her real world that are happening to her. So there's a almost a meta element that 
happens as her own stories are starting to take the shape of the stories that she's experiencing. And that becomes sort of a dangerous, tense component in the story as well. Yeah. I mean, I think there definitely is a meta element. And sometimes it's sometimes you lay that right out on the page. Um, there's a there's a line that I loved where she says, if this had been a novel, this moment would be a turning point. Um, how do you do you talk about sort of including those those meta moments? And do you, I mean, you use that as a signpost for your readers or is it just part of the humor? I mean, I love those moments, but what, what do they mean to you? Sometimes they were just moments I put on the page as I was writing because that thought occurred to me, you know, like this is the turning point in my story. Well, you know, this is, and it sort of made it on the page. And in any other book, it would be the kind of thing you would edit out. But in this book, because this is so much a part of Finley's world, her career, it makes sense to keep those meta moments there. But um, yeah, it's, you know, I think I tried to, as often as I could, when my own voice, came into the story, my own writer voice came into the story, I tried to pick and choose moments that felt like they would also work for this one, because those would also be coming, I mean, Finley would be having a lot of those same thoughts. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, You you talked about, you know, using her career as a backdrop, using her ex-husband as a backdrop. These are all things that are sort of putting pressure on Finley. She's got the pressure from her ex-husband about, about, um, who's going to have the kids. She got pressure coming from her agent about you. You got a manuscript due. And then there's some other kinds of pressure that come in that are, that are a little more subtle. And I want to talk about her sister for a minute. You choose to make her sister uh, a law enforcement officer, um, which when you're flirting with that line of murder, as you said, can, can be a little awkward. Tell us a little bit about her relationship with with Georgia, why you wanted Georgia to be a, a cop and sort of what you feel like it adds dramatically to the story. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I love I love her relationship with Georgia. I have a lot of fun with writing the two of them and seeing together as a hoot. They have a really um, special and unique relationship. The choice to make Georgia a cop was a conscious choice. It was a, another way to turn the screw, you know, to, to apply more pressure. If you have Um, a a family member that you're very, very close to that you're used to sharing everything with. And suddenly you're embroiled in something that you can't share with this person, you know, then um, that creates a whole whole nother level of tension. And I loved watching the two of them, Georgia unknowingly, but I loved watching Finley sort of navigate that shift and their relationship. That was really kind of fun to to work their sisterhood onto the page yeah yeah one one question i try to ask myself a lot when i'm writing a, a thriller uh or a mystery but especially with a thriller is what you know i'm in a situation i've got my character in a situation what can go wrong uh, <laughs> what's the worst thing that could happen to them and then let let's have that happen um do you do you find that sort of question to be a useful uh tool for kind of creating danger and, and conflict Oh, most definitely. I mean, that's my, as far as I'm concerned, that's my job is to <laughs> make things as difficult for my protagonist as I can. Right. And, and that doesn't always happen in the first draft. You know, sometimes um, normally it happens if I'm going through the writing and I'm bored, I'm losing interest, I'm, I'm rereading passages and where I feel like not enough is happening. Um, that's usually where I try to reevaluate and say, where did I miss a turn here? There was an opportunity here that was missed. How do I go back and find it? And, um, 
you know, I've, I've learned over the years, just watching other really successful writers, listening to other really successful writers that a scene should always do more than one thing. It should, it should pull a lot of weight and the scenes that aren't pulling a lot of weight need to go or need to be revisited somehow to make them propel the story forward, you know, reflect something about new, new about the character, reveal something to the reader. It all needs to be doing more. And so part of my job in going back through the manuscript, especially in revision, is, is looking at missed opportunities. And sometimes that means, did I not put enough pressure on my protagonist? Did I not, um, you know, turn the screw hard enough? Did I not put them in the most horrible situation? What is the worst possible thing that could happen in this moment? And finding those opportunities. Yeah. Um, at what point did you realize that you might be writing a series? I mean, this, you, we talked about character arc and a lot of things that sort of apply to a single book, but as soon as you say, okay, I'm writing multiple series, then you got to go, well, I've got to, I can't take my character arc all the way to the end of where I want it to go. Cause it's got to, then go somewhere else in the next book. So how, when did you realize that was maybe what was going on and, and how did you adjust to that knowledge? When I first started drafting Finley Donovan, um, I had no idea if this book was ever going to sell. First of all, it was a passion project. Um, <clears throat> so I, at the beginning, it was really just a matter of, can I piece together enough of a part of a story that might entice my agent and might, give us an opportunity to see if this is something we could do. Um, but I knew fairly early in the process that it was going to become a series. Um, when Minotaur offered for the book, they offered for the first two with the understanding that if it went well, that it could lend itself to a series. And so, of course, everyone's cautiously optimistic in the beginning and nobody wants to overpromise. And it's hard to know, especially with a book like this, that sort of bends genre lines and doesn't necessarily shelf neatly um, on just one particular shelf. It's a whole lot of different kinds of books all in one. We weren't real sure what to expect. So we went into it knowing for certain there were going to be absolutely two books with the hopes that it would do well enough that we could then create a series out of it. So I knew before the first book was finished that I would have to leave it open for the second book and potentially create enough fodder to continue that beyond. Yeah. So it was fairly early on that we knew. And thankfully, um, I'm, I'm very excited to say that the first two books have done very well and we've um, renewed our contract for an additional two. So we have book three coming in January and getting ready to sit down and start book four. And we have fingers crossed that we'll continue to see more of Finley and Vera beyond. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, I, without spoiling anything, I just want to say to readers who haven't read the first book yet, uh, when you get to the last sentence, wow, you know, that's like, talk about a, talk about a way to propel you into the next book. That is, that was, that was uh, fantastic. Um, you're reading your accounts of, of Finley and her children. It sort of strikes me that parenting and writing a novel are not that far removed from each other. You know, they're all about keeping track of all these different strands and all this stuff is going on, whether it's the voice of your character or what time you have to be a soccer practice. Um, in, in your life, how do you, how have you balanced those, those two things, the, 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 your career as a mother and your career as a writer, how, how have they intersected? In the spirit of honesty and parenting, I'm going to say, I don't know that I ever did balance it. Um, 
And I don't know that any of us do. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Um, and, and I think in the spirit of raw honesty of parenting, it's, you know, it's a juggling act from one day to the next. And we just do the best we can. We all, we're all doing the best we can. For me, that means um, I don't sleep a lot. Um, it's, you know, my life, my life is, is hectic and it's not glamorous. Um, I, you know, I, uh, I homeschool my kids. And so for me, my days are spent with my teacher hat and my mom hat and my career hat often has to wait until the wee hours of the night, like Finley, like Finley's, I mean, her experience is very much the same. Um, you know, and I do the best I can and I feel like my kids are pretty great and I'm really, really proud of what we've all accomplished, but, but it's hard. And, and I don't know that, you know, we're all multitasking. It's, you know, writing, writing and parenting and, and, and career and everything else is a matter of just keeping a lot of balls in the air and catching the ones that are the most important. And that's, you know, that's day to day is just, um, doing the best we can. You you, you use the English language so well. I mean, sometimes it's not something complicated, but it just it's just a beautiful sentence. I, I, I wrote this one down. They staked him out at the bar. They'd stalked him to my house. Just like using those two words that are one letter off from each other in the same sentence. I just love that you can do stuff like that with the English language. Not every language works as well for that sort of thing. Um, how, how conscious are you on a sort of sentence and word choice level of kind of the sound and the shape of, of what you're writing? I will say that I'm very, very hard on myself when it comes to this particular aspect of my writing. Um, I've always been very quick to say I'm a storyteller, and I think I'm a great storyteller. I, I, I won't hold back. Um, when I say I'm a, a writer, do I say I'm a great writer? I don't know. Like I don't have, I don't have the formal training at that at prose you know, at, at making beautiful prose. And so I have to work, or I feel like I have to work very, very hard at it. And that's, my, my editors and my agents will tell you I'm infuriating in that regard because I will keep the red pen in my hand until someone physically forcefully removes it from me and says, you can no longer revise your prose. You're done. It's over. Um, because I will continue to to be hard on myself about my books, even beyond, I don't read any of my books after they've, after they've gone to print, um, because there are too many things I would like to change. I'm very, um, very particular uh, about that. Um, it, you know, and I, I overthink things like cadence. I overthink things like word choice. I overthink things like the, the rhythm of a paragraph, all of that. So, it sort of strikes me by surprise when someone comes out and picks out a line that they say they feel is beautiful because, <laughs> because it feels really, really good. It feels earned. Um, but it, it, but it also strikes me by surprise because I'm hard on myself in that yeah. respect. Yeah. Well, there's so much else we could talk about, about these books. We didn't even, we didn't even get into the romance. We could do a whole other podcast <laughs> on, on that aspect, but um, we do have to wrap up, but we like to end every episode of inside the writer's studio with the same 10 questions. Uh, you should be able to answer each of them in just two or three words, but hopefully they'll give us some insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. Go for it. What word do you love to work into your writing? I always work this one in my books and somehow my editors always take them out. But for some reason, I have I have this thing with the word diaphanous. I like diaphanous. And, <laughs> and, yet, and yet somehow it never makes it into the book. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Moist. <laughs> 
where's your favorite place to write? Um, any, any place quiet. Where could you never write? In a cafe. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? M dashes. I'm fond of M dashes. Okay. Yeah. What was the first book you remember reading? The Witch of Blackbird Pond. What are you reading now? Uh, a manuscript, Widow, The Widowmaker by Hannah Morrissey. What book would you like to have written? The Lock Artist by Steve Hamilton. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Romance. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That I made a difference in their life. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been El Cosimano, whose novels Finley Donovan is Killing It and Finley Donovan Knocks Him Dead are available wherever books are sold. And Finley Donovan Jumps the Gun is coming in 2023. El, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking to Pulitzer Prize winner Geraldine Brooks about her new novel, Horse. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Thank you.